Welcome back to Psych Your Tribe. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Hey, Godwins, I just really want to thank you for listening. Um, I always say this, but I never thought I'd be able to do this for so long. I'm so surprised that I have so many listeners from all around the world. I, I say this every time. I always thought that maybe it would just be a couple of people from my family who would be listening, and that's it. Um, so I'm always so grateful to have you listening and I appreciate it so much. Um, as always, if you can rate us on the platforms that you're listening to us on, that, um, gets us seen and it gets us onto those recommended lists. It helps us grow our listenership and, um, we, I'm working on merchandise, uh, currently and the second podcast, American Policing Notes on a Scandal, um, is going to be coming soon. So I'm just working on making more content for you. Um, people did respond well to the live. So we are going to do, I'm going to do more live shows. Um, I'm trying to uh, make them more interesting. I'm looking at having uh, collaborations and having it not just be me, but having other people. So I am trying to create better content. Um, things are coming down for me. So I'm going to have more time to be able to do that for you. So I'm just trying to work on having a little bit more content and better content for you guys. Uh, just trying to um, do better for you since you guys have shown me so much support and love. I just want to make more content for you guys. And also I am working on the merchandise line um, so that I can just, you can show me love um, and I can show you love with the merchandise. So this week we are looking at Catherine Knight. She is the first woman in Australia who was sentenced to life in prison. Now, as a rule of thumb, men are responsible for over 90% of serious violent crimes, such as assaults, homicides, and violent robberies. Why is there such a large gender gap and why is it likely to persist? One might imagine that lower violent crime rates for women reflects a generally lower level of aggression. Yet marriage researchers observed that the pattern is quite the opposite. Women are more likely to pick fights with their husbands and they are quicker to escalate to verbal aggression and are quite likely to use physical aggression as quite as likely to use physical aggression as men. Despite these counterintuitive findings, men are much more likely to be convicted of domestic violence related charges. One obvious reason is that men are generally larger and stronger and may have more experience with physical aggression, such as that commonly associated with contact sports. Another intriguing difference between men and women in the context of domestic disputes is that men generally become more physiologically aroused in terms of increased blood pressure. The body is revved up and ready to go, damaging aggression is more likely. Moreover, when it occurs, the aggression is more likely to be extreme, uncontrolled, or disinhibited. These are words that are sometimes used to describe violent and extreme and grisly crime scenes. In the vast majority of such crimes, the perpetrators are men. Physical strength is clearly one risk factor for committing violent crimes, and this helps explain why so many of the perpetrators are men. Indeed, men's greater average upper body strength and height may have evolved as adaptations for physical fighting strength, although arm strength also contributes to successful hunting of large grain, 
that used to be a male specialty in pre-agricultural societies. Although men are more likely to perpetuate violent crimes, societies with an excess of women in the population have higher crime rates because there are more extramarital sexuality and greater male-to-male competition over sexual partners or brides. In the past, female involvement in organized crime was minimal and largely due to association with husbands or boyfriends. All that is changing and women are beginning to claim a slice of the action as gender equality moves into the crime world with women taking on high-risk occupations. Many people were not aware that there is a female version of El Chapo deeply entrenched into the cartels. Now, this is relevant because we, Catherine Knight, born on the 24th of October, 1955. Catherine Knight was the younger of twins born to Barbara and her partner, Ken, um, like I said, on the 24th of October, 1955, in Tenterfield, New South Wales. Jack Ronan died in 1959, and the two children had lived with him, moved in with the Knight family. Barbara's grandmother was an indigenous Australian from the Maori. This was kept a family secret, and there was considerable racism in the area at the time. This was a source of tension for the children. Apart from her twin, the only person Knight was close to was her uncle Oscar, who was a champion horseman. She was devastated when he committed suicide in 1969 and continued to maintain, continues to maintain that his ghost comes to visit her. The family moved back to Aberdeen that year. Knight's father, Ken, was an alcoholic who openly used violence and intimidation to rape her mother up to 10 times a day. Barbara, in turn, often to, to intimate details of the issues happening within her family and how much she hated men and she hated sex. Later when Knight complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted her to take part in sex acts she didn't want to do, Barbara told her to put up with it and stop complaining. Knight claimed she was frequently sexually abused by several members of her family, though not by her father, which continued until she was 11. Although they have minor doubts about the details, psychiatrists accept her claims as all her family members confirm that the abuse did in fact happen. Catherine was by all accounts a rather pleasant girl who experienced uncontrollably murderous rages in responses to minor upsets. When she attended the Muswellbrook High School, she became a loner and is remembered by classmates as a bully who stood over smaller children. She assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher who was found to have acted in self-defense. By contrast, when not in a rage, Knight was a model student and often earned awards for her good behavior. On leaving school at 15 without having learned to read or write, she gained employment as a cutter in a clothing factory. Twelve months later, she went to start at what she referred to as her dream job, cutting up at Ophel, the local abattoir, from where she was quickly promoted to boning and giving her own set of butcher knives. So for those of you who are not sure or aware of what an abattoir is, it's like a butchery. It's like 
the actual factory or slaughterhouse where they take the animals to have them butchered. So um, at home, she hung the knives over her bed so they would always be handy if I need them. So I've seen a picture of this and kind of think of like, like the mounting on the wall and knives out where they have it spread in a fan. A habit she continued until her incarceration in every single home she lived. Catherine first met hard-drinking co-worker David Sanford Kellett in 1973 and completely dominated him. If Kellett got into a fight at a hotel, Knight would sleep in, in and back him up with her fists without fail. In Aberdeen, she was renowned for offering armed combat to anyone who would, who would upset her. So basically, if you pissed her off, she would offer to fight you, which is kind of ridiculous, but okay. Knight married Kellett in 1974 at her request. So basically, she was like, you want to get married? He was like, I cool. With the couple arriving at the service on her motorcycle with a very intoxicated Kellett on the back. So basically, she's like, you want to get married? And he's drunk. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they rode up on the motorcycle. <laughs> so already, this is off to a very bad start. As soon as they arrived, Knight's mother, Barbara, gave Kellett some advice, probably the best advice of his life. The old girl said to me, watch out, and quote, you better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you, end quote. Maybe it's just me. But if your mother, every other sentence, actually every single sentence, is dropping F-bombs to drive the point home that the woman that you just married in a drunken stupor is going to kill you, you should be peacing out. <laughs> okay? Her mother, her mother, I'm sorry, not his mother, her mother. Her mother is dropping F-bombs to drive the point home that her daughter is going to kill you. It's time to get out. You are literally in a horror movie. It's time to go. <laughs> On their wedding night. Yep, time to go. Made a bad choice. On their wedding night, she tried to strangle him. Knight explained it was because he fell asleep after only having sex three times. Get out. Get out. For real. You're going to die. The marriage was particularly violent, and on one occasion, a heavily pregnant knight burned all of Kellett's clothing and shoes before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan, and simply because he had arrived home late from a darts competition after he made the finals. In fear for his life, Kellett fled before collapsing in a neighbor's house, and he was later treated for a badly fractured skull. Police wanted to charge her, but Knight was now on her best behavior and talked Kelly into dropping the charges. In May 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, Kelly left her for another woman and moved to Queensland, apparently unable to cope with Knight's possessive and violent behavior. 
The next day, Knight was seen pushing her new baby in a carriage down the main street, violently throwing the, the carriage from side to side. Knight was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent several weeks recovering. After being released, Knight placed two-month-old Melissa on a railway line shortly before the train was due, then stole an axe, went into town, and threatened to kill several people. A man known in the district as Old Ted, who was foraging near the railway line, found and rescued the baby by all accounts just minutes before the train came. Knight was arrested and again taken to the hospital, but apparently recovered, signed herself out only the following day. A few days later, Knight slashed the face of a woman with one of her knives and demanded she drive her to Queensland to find Kellett. The woman escaped after they stopped at a service station, but by the time police arrived, Knight had taken a little boy hostage and was threatening him with a knife. She was disarmed when the police attacked her with brooms and she was admitted to the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. Knight told the nurses she had intended to kill the mechanic at the service station because he had repaired Kellett's car, which had allowed him to leave her and then kill both her husband and his mother when she arrived in Queensland. When police informed Kellett of the incident, he left his girlfriend along with his mother and they both moved to Aberdeen to support her. Knight was released on the 9th of August, 1976 into the care of her mother-in-law along with Kellett. They now moved to Woodbridge, a suburb of Brisbane where she obtained a job in the Dinmore Meatworks in nearby Ipswich. On the 6th of March, 1980, they had another daughter. Oh, no. This is, uh, no. So bad. Natasha Marie. In 1984, Knight left Kellett and moved in first with her parents in Aberdeen, then into a rented house in nearby Muswellbrook. Although she returned to work at the abattoir, she injured her neck the following year and went on a disability pension. No longer needing to rent accommodations close to her work, the government gave her housing in Aberdeen. Knight met 38-year-old minor David Saunders in 1986. A few months later, he moved in with her and her two daughters, although he kept his old apartment in Scone. Knight soon became jealous regarding what he did when she was not with him, and would often throw him out. He would move back to his apartment in Scone, and then she would invariably follow him and beg him to return. In May 1987, she cut the throat of his two-month-year-old puppy in front of him for no more reason than as an example of what would happen if he ever had an affair, before going on to knock him unconscious with a frying pan. In June 1988, she gave birth to her third daughter, Sarah, which prompted Saunders to put a deposit on a house, which Knight paid off when her workers' compensation came through in 1989. Knight decorated the house with animal skins, skulls, horns, 
rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks. No space, including the ceiling, was left uncovered. Can we talk about the fact that she has three small children and the house is covered in very dangerous <laughs> objects? Like, this is not a child-friendly home. And I'm super concerned about the fact that she just had another child. <laughs> and he clearly does not have great judgment that he decided to have a child with the woman who cut the throat of his dog in front of him. And hit him over the head with a frying pan. Like, obviously, this is the mentality of someone who is in a victim mentality. But, wow, okay. After an argument where she hit Saunders in the face with an iron before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors, he moved back to Scone. But when he later returned home, he found that she had cut up all his clothes. Saunders took long service league and went into hiding. Knight tried to find him, but no one would admit to knowing where he was. Several months later, he returned to see his daughter and found that Knight had gone to the police and told them she was afraid for her life. They issued her with an apprehend for violence order. In 1990, Knight became pregnant by a 43-year-old former abattoir worker, John Chillingworth, and gave birth the following year to a boy they named Eric. Their relationship lasted three years before she left him for a man she had been having an affair with for some time, John Price. When Price initially asked about Knight, he was told that her last boyfriend was in hiding for fear of his life. Price thought they were joking at best, being that they were joking at best, and at being melodramatic at worst, and asked her out anyway. John Pricey, as they called him, was the father of three children when Knight had an affair with him. Reputedly a terrific guy, Liked by everyone who knew him, his own marriage had ended in 1988. While his two-year-old daughter had remained with his former wife, the other two children lived with him. Price was well aware of Knight's violent reputation, and she moved into his house in 1995. His children liked her. He was making a lot of money working in the local mines, and apart from violent arguments, at first, life was a bunch of roses. In 1998, they had a fight over Price's refusal to marry her, and in retaliation, Knight videotaped items from work and sent the tape to his boss. Although the items were out-of-date medical kits that he had scavenged from the rubbish, Price was fired from the job he had had for 17 years. A few months later, Price restarted the relationship he now even though he now refused to allow her to live with him. The fighting became more frequent, and most of his friends would no longer have anything to do with him while they remained together. Finally, believing people may not have been exaggerating when they tried to warn him off of her, Price tracked down David Saunders to find out just what happened between them. He was shocked and horrified. And shortly afterwards, in February of 2000, a series of assaults on Price culminated with Knight stabbing him in the chest 
finally fed up, he kicked her out for good. Once Price had rung the police, Knight began planning his demise. She went out and bought a sexy nightie for the evening, as well as hiding her butcher knife in the bedroom in the bed. She also made sure she had the right pots for his head and that her knives were sharp enough. On the 29th of February, Price stopped at the Scone Magistrate's Court on his way to work and took out a restraining order to keep her from both him and his children. That afternoon, Price warned his co-workers that if he did not come to work the next day, it would be because Knight had killed him. They pleaded with him not to go home, but he told them that he believed she would kill his children if he did not. Price arrived home to find that Knight, although not there herself, had sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house. He then spent the evening with his neighbors before going to bed at 11 p.m. Early that day, Knight had bought new black lingerie and had videotaped all her children while making comments which have since been interpreted as a crude will. Knight later arrived at Price's house while he was sleeping and sat watching TV for a few minutes before having a shower. She then woke Price and they had sex, after which he fell asleep. At 6 a.m. the next morning, the neighbor became concerned that Price's car was still in the driveway, and when Price did not arrive at work, his employer sent a worker to see what was wrong. Both the neighbor and the worker tried knocking on Price's bedroom window to wake him, but after noticing blood on the front door, alerted the police who arrived at 8 a.m. Breaking down the back door, police found his body with night comatose from taking a large number of pills. She had stabbed Price with a butcher knife while he was sleeping. According to the blood evidence, he awoke and tried to turn the light on before attempting to escape while Knight chased him through the house. He managed to open the front door and get outside, but either stumbled back inside or was dragged into the hallway where he finally died after bleeding out. Later, Knight went into Aberdeen and withdrew $1,000 from his ATM account. Price's autopsy revealed that he had been stabbed 37 times in both the front and back of his body with many of the wounds extending into vital organs. Several hours after Price had died, Knight skinned him and hung the skin from a meat hook in the architrave of a door to the lounge. She then decapitated him and cooked parts of his body, serving up the meat with baked potato, pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy in two settings at the dinner table, along with notes beside each plate, each with the name of one of Price's children. She was preparing to serve him to his children. Because, wow. A third meal was thrown on the back lawn for unknown reasons, and many people believe it's because she had attempted to eat it and then could not. And this puts forward support of her claim that she doesn't really remember the crime. Price's head was found in a pot with vegetables, and the pot was still warm. 
estimated to be between 40 and 50 degrees Celsius, indicating that the cooking had taken place in the early morning. Some time later, Knight arranged the body with the left arm draped over a soft drink bottle with the legs crossed. It was claimed in court that this was an act of defilement demonstrating Knight's contempt. Knight had left a handwritten note on top of a photograph of Price. It was for his children. I'm not going to read it. It was pretty disrespectful. Um, and it talks about having his children play with his body parts. Knight's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected. And she was arraigned on the 2nd of February 2001 on the charge of murdering Price to which she entered the plea of not guilty. Her trial was initially fixed for the 23rd of July, 2001, but was adjourned due to her counsel's illness and was moved back to the 15th of October, 2001. When the trial commenced, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospects the option of being excused due to the graphic nature of the photographic evidence, and five accepted. When the witness list was read out, the prospects, several more, also dropped out, after which the jury was impaneled. Knight's attorneys then spoke to the judge, who adjourned the following day. The next morning, Knight changed her plea to guilty, and the jury was dismissed. It is now made public that Justice O'Keefe had been advised of the plea change the day before. He had adjourned the trial and then ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Knight understood the consequences of a guilty plea and was fit to make such a plea. Knight's legal team had planned to defend Knight by claiming amnesia and disassociation, a claim supported by most psychiatrists, although they did consider her to be sane. No reason was ever given for the guilty plea, and despite giving it, Knight still refused to accept any responsibility for her actions. At the sentencing hearing, Knight's lawyers requested that Knight be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but that application was refused. When Dr. Timothy Lyons took the stand and described the skinning and decapitation, Knight became hysterical and had to be sedated. On the 8th of November, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime and Knight's lack of remorse required a severe penalty, and so he sentenced her to life in prison, refused to fix a non-parole period, and ordered that her papers be marked never released. The first time that this has ever happened to a woman in the history of Australia. In June 2006, Knight appealed this sentence, claiming that a penalty of life in jail without the possibility of parole was too severe. Justices Peter McClellan, Michael Adams, and Megan Latham dismissed the appeal in the Court of Criminal Appeals in September, with Justice McClellan writing in his judgment, this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in any civilized society, and therefore it warrants you staying in jail without ever being able to join society again. And that is the absolute abhorrent, abhorrent case of Catherine Knight. I just, that's just too too awful and heinous um join me again in two weeks when we look at the case 
of a missing four-year-old girl in a well-to-do Mexican suburb who disappears from a secure compound and it captures the entire country due to a bungled investigation and they find the little girl nine days later inside the home which is absolutely dumbfounding as the evidence absolutely betrays what the police and prosecutors have been telling everyone the entirety of the investigation. So what happens when the narrative that the public is being fed completely contradicts all the evidence that has been collected? We will find out two weeks from now. But in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.